Joining us today on the Dialogos Radio and the Dialogos interview series is former U.S. diplomat and former foreign policy advisor to U.S. Senate Republican leadership Jim Jatras, originally known as Dimitrios Yatridis, uh, joining us today from Washington. He's an analyst and a media personality. He appears frequently on RT and his writing appears frequently in Strategic Culture, Zero Hedge, and the Ron Paul Institute, Lou Rockwell, Chronicles Magazine, and other outlets. Jim has served for many years at the senior staff level at the U- U.S. Senate Republican Policy Committee. He has worked as a Foreign Service Officer with the U.S. Department of State, and uh, he originates from the Laconia region of Greece. So, Jim, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. I'm very pleased to be here, and I, 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 I'm grateful for your invitation. It's been 20 years since the NATO bombing campaign of Serbia, and since then we've seen changes in the map of the Balkan region. We've seen the creation of Kosovo and Montenegro. More recently, we've seen the PRESPA agreement, renaming Greece's northern neighbor as North Macedonia, an agreement that's disputed by many in both Greece and its neighbor. And at the same time, recently, we are seeing increasing instability throughout the Balkan region, including in countries like Albania and Montenegro, where there have been anti-government protests as of late. So, Jim, to start us off, where do you see things headed in the Balkans today? Uh, If anybody knows the answer to that question, I hope they could inform all of us, because I certainly don't. Uh, I, I think it is very important, though, that we focus on this, because you know, even people who have begun to question the trajectory of American policy the last few decades, especially looking at some of the interventions in the Middle East, whether it's Iraq or Libya or Syria, Yemen, places like this, they tend to gloss over with a kind of a respectful silence what happened in the Balkans in the 1990s, which was really the maiden voyage of the good ship global hegemony uh, for Washington. This is where for the first time, really starting in Bosnia in 1995, but more so in definitively in Kosovo in 1999, the U.S. and NATO, which is essentially an American control mechanism in Europe, made its bid for global domination. And I, and I think a lot of people just sort of have forgotten about that. It even chalked it down in their minds as, well, those were successful interventions. We went into Kosovo and NATO really did its job there, uh, rather than looking at the, the mess that we created there that... Okay, it's all fine and good to come in there and reform the borders of the Balkans to look more like the borders of 1943 than the borders of 1993. But what we've done is planted a number of little time bombs around the region that are going to come back and explode one of these days. And we can be talking about Firom or Macedonia or North Macedonia, whatever they're calling it this week. The the plans uh, for, for greater Albania that have not ended. We still have a very strong movement in that direction that would either bifurcate Macedonia, North Macedonia, whatever we're calling it, has designs on Montenegro, on uh, other parts of southern Serbia, the instability that is it, it, we, we see increasing in Serbia, and also the, the gross instability of Bosnia-Herzegovina, which can be called a state only in the most fictional sense. So uh, nothing really has been solved in the Balkans, and the idea that the West and NATO, and especially the United States, 
has been a force for, quote, stability, is about as far from the truth as it could be. Now, what do you make specifically of the PRESPA agreement? We see a lot of support for it in NATO, in the European Union, in the State Department, certainly in the governments of the two countries involved. Why are these actors so adamant about bringing Greece's neighbor, which is now being called North Macedonia, into the NATO fold? We're not exactly talking about a big military power. Well, I think there are two reasons, uh, and, I, and I think you're right to, to point to this, is that it's about, again, I don't, how are we going to describe this entity in Skopje as, as in uh, getting that entity into NATO? And I think the, the reasons for that are twofold. One is, and by the way, it has nothing to do with Greece and nothing to do with Macedonia. It has to do with expanding NATO uh, in the short term surrounding Serbia and putting the pressure on Serbia to also fold into NATO, even though public opinion there is very strongly against it, but also the uh, the, the Pac-Man in Eastern Europe keeps gobbling up one country after the other. NATO really, remember, has not given up on the idea that Ukraine and Georgia will also become members of NATO. In fact, the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, was in Tbilisi recently and reminded everybody that the 2008 Bucharest Declaration is still on the table. Nobody has walked away from that. So I think that the shorter issue is everybody must be in NATO, which means under American political control, and that means Skopje as well, but eventually pressing Serbia into that status. And then that's part of a larger plan to make sure that, that Russia is totally surrounded by NATO states and American military bases. Now, what's interesting here, since you just mentioned Russia, is that Russia itself recently recognized the name North Macedonia. And what's interesting is that up until very recently, Russia was expressing its concern, if you will, over the PRESPA agreement. There were many who felt that Russia was supportive of the opposition in that country, which was also against the name change and the PRESPA agreement as well. So what broader machinations are taking place in the region in terms of Russia's involvement in the Balkans? And why did they decide to recognize this country as North Macedonia at this time? Well, the short answer is I don't know why they would do that. Russian policy is sometimes very hard to read. For example, even though, uh, say, in Montenegro, Milo Zhukanovic is, is clearly an American puppet, the uh, Russians still maintain very close and cordial ties with, with uh, Montenegro, uh, partly because of maybe a lot of Russians keep their money there. Sometimes the direction of Russian policy doesn't seem to be all that clearly formulated and maybe sometimes is reflective of the interests of various elites in that country rather than some well-thought-out policy there. Maybe it's something as simple as the fact that, well, they look at it that whatever the, the corrupt machinations behind it, that if as a sovereign decision this country decided to change its name, why is it their business to second-guess it? Uh, I don't. I don't really know the reason for it. I don't know. It's because I, I would very much doubt it's because they have some well thought out master plan that is just oh so clever. Nobody can figure it out. I think sometimes their policy tends to be very mechanical and almost proceeds by default. I, I think that's clearly the case. For example, with respect to Serbia and their very warm relationship with uh, Vucic there, even though. Which is a terribly untrustworthy character. Now, looking at the PRESPA agreement some more, uh, recently we had on this program a international law scholar by the name of Francis Boyle who predicted that the PRESPA agreement itself 
doesn't have staying power, that the main goal really was just to get the country that is now calling itself North Macedonia into NATO. And you yourself just a few moments ago said that the Balkan region more broadly is a powder keg waiting to explode. So do you believe that the PRESPA agreement has staying power? And as a second part to that question, in your view, is the Trump administration supportive of this agreement? Oh, oh, yes, I think the Trump administration is supportive of this agreement. When we say the Trump administration, I think we have to make a distinction between, what was this fellow's name? Donald Trump, I think, in 2016, who promised us an America First policy that would get away from all these various little foreign entanglements and adventures and put our just our national interests first, rather than these, these great sweeping plots to uh, gain influence all over the world. That's all out the window, of course. There are many of us who are naive enough to think that when Trump took over, we would see a change in policy from the, what it had been under Obama and, and Bush. And, of course, nothing has changed. That If you look at uh, the American diplomacy, if you want to call it that in the region, it seems to be a, a branch office of uh, George Soros's Open Society organizations. I don't think that there is any real plan in this area except to put everybody under Washington's thumb through NATO. As far as the stability of the PRESPA agreement, that obviously can't be any more stable than the state itself that it describes, which is North Macedonia at the moment. By the way, I've, I've always wondered why that would be considered by anybody in Greece to be any kind of a compromise or an improvement over Macedonia. I mean, doesn't North Macedonia imply that there's a South Macedonia that's part of the same entity? It, it seems to me in some ways it's even more problematic than the previous name was. It does. And there are many in Greece who are expressing their opposition for the PRESPA agreement on those grounds because it seems to be implying that there is one region that is split into two that will at some point in the future need reunification. Now, a moment ago you mentioned Greater Albania and we'll come back to that, but there have also been maps circulating for a number of years that have shown a so-called Greater Macedonia, which includes significant portions of northern Greek territory as well, the city of Thessaloniki, which is the capital of the Greek region of Macedonia, and the entire surrounding region, and even even to the south of that as well. So there's many in Greece who are concerned that despite the fact that the proponents of the agreement say that it prevents any expansionist claims of one country upon the other, that in reality this is opening the door for possible calls for a reunification, if you will, of Macedonia in the future. Attached to that, we also see there was actually a BBC radio report and a BBC article on this recently, calls for the recognition of a so-called Macedonian minority as well. So where can all of this possibly lead? It it can lead to a number of places. It's it's a bucket of worms, and it's hard to predict which of the various competing strains of nationalism could manifest itself. Look, as, as far as uh, the what we might call you know, Slavic Macedonian nationalism, I understand, and I, and I hope I'm not offending too many of the Greek listeners, that I understand the Greek concerns over Alexander the Great and the cultural legacy and the notion that, that this is a, if you will, a Hellenic cultural trademark that this uh, entity is attempting to usurp. I certainly understand that and that the Greeks find this offensive. At the same time, what I don't see is any particular vitality or, let's say, 
political or military throw weight to that nationalism, which quite to the contrary, is having trouble even hanging on to the state that it has. That if we look at American policy over the last three decades, that what you see most strongly promoted is various forms of nationalism or even religious fervor among Muslim nationalities in the Balkans, whether we're talking about in Bosnia, obviously the Kosovo Albanians. I can remember even in the mid-1990s, there were reports in Bulgarian media about American diplomats traveling to the Greek-Bulgarian border region to whip up Homak Islamic consciousness in a way that would be contrary to the interests of both Greece and Bulgaria. So even though I think that, let's say that vision exists among uh, what we might call Macedonian nationalists, I don't think they really have the strength or the patron to push that, whereas I think the Albanian greater national, greater Albanian nationalists do have that because it fits into a much broader American perspective where Islamic consciousness is, has been a very strong tool of American policy, and we see this most particularly with the support of uh, Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda-linked organizations in, in Bosnia, in Kosovo, in Libya, Syria, and so forth. Okay, so having brought this back to the issue of Albania and having mentioned these designs for a greater Albania earlier, what are some of the power centers that would be supportive of the establishment of a greater Albania? What territory could Greater Albania encompass, and what would the development of a Greater Albania mean for Greece and for the Balkans? Well, I think the most vulnerable state, as it happens, is in fact, again, we're calling it this for the time being, uh, North Macedonia, that this is now effectively a binational state, that uh, Albanian has been elevated to a state language, and increasingly we see in uh, northwest North Macedonia that Slavs move out and Albanians move in, and the area is increasingly Islamized. This is what we saw in Kosovo. We were seeing to in the Preshova Valley in, in, in Serbia that you've got a region in Montenegro called, I think they call it Milesia, that the uh, Albanians have a claim to, and of course in the region in northern Greece, which would be southern Epirus, that uh, they call Jamiria, that they have a claim to as well. So, uh, and, and, there, and, and there's a very strong lobby for this here in Washington. And I would point out that the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, Elliot Engels of New York, is a very, very strong friend of that political movement in his district because he has a lot of constituents in his district that, 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 that uh, are, are of that perspective. And this lobby that you mentioned, this uh, strong lobby that is supporting the, the future establishment of a greater Albania, would you possibly be aware of any non-governmental support that it has, any financial backing that this movement has? I don't, I, I, can't, I can't tell you specifically about it, except that there is a lot of money that goes to this in the Albanian community. And again, I wouldn't want to cast aspersions on Albanians as a whole, because there are many, many good people out there in the Albanian community. I should say, in particular, many Orthodox Christians. But at the same time, as we know uh, from from Kosovo and from and and and, and elsewhere in Europe, as well as in the United States, especially in New York, New Jersey, there's a very strong Albanian mafia. A very a lot of money, some of it not clean money, uh, in that community, and they are very politically active with their money. Uh, Look, uh, you know, I, I, because of the events of the Balkans, I've had a very close connection with the Serbian community here in the United States. Um, and they are not particularly 
well organized that uh, every time they want to set up an effort here so we, we need to be like the Albanians we need to set up organizations we need to collect money and they don't do a very good job at it whereas the Albanians especially given that they are somewhat tribal society are in a very good position to say you five thousand dollars you ten thousand dollars you five thousand dollars they collect money and they use it politically we are on the air here on the Alagos Radio and the The Alagos Interview Series with former U.S. diplomat and foreign policy advisor to U.S. Senate Republican leadership Jim Jatras. And Jim, let's shift gears a little bit here and talk about uh, another part of the same region, Turkey. We've got an ongoing saga. Will Turkey go ahead with the purchase of the S-400s from Russia? Will the U.S. withhold the sale of the F-35s to Turkey? Will Turkey be booted out of NATO? Will Turkey permanently enter the Russian fold? We've gotten a big back and forth on all of this in recent weeks and months. Uh, What is your impression of what is going on and what will happen as far as these weapons purchases and as far as uh, Turkey's alignment with NATO, the United States, and with Russia? It's, uh, again, this is another multifaceted question uh, with many moving parts, and it's hard to know at any given time which one of them will uh, will will be most, um, most powerful. I mean, first off, we have to look at the internal situation within Turkey, where President Erdogan, who uh, seemed to have nailed down almost total power, throughout the country, people calling him Sultan Erdogan, has, has lost some uh, recent elections, municipal elections, including losing the leadership of some of the biggest cities in Turkey. So maybe he's not quite as powerful as he was uh, a, a little while back. He has, uh, as far as the relationship with Russia goes, uh, the, the I think the, the key factor there is Syria, where Turkey had gotten out, let's say, out over its skis, in terms of the role it thought could play in Serbia, excuse me, in Syria, uh, shot down that Russian plane, and then of course uh, was really put in a very difficult position by the Russians, and really had to come crawling back to the Russians, and now is more of an in an entente with Russia and Iran uh, with respect to uh, to Syria, uh, has been increasingly alienated from the United States. Of course, it didn't help that the United States adopted the Kurds as our proxy in Syria. So we have a a number of grounds for alienation between Washington and Ankara, even before we get to the question of the S-400s. I think the Turks were thinking that if they're buying F-35s from the Americans, S-400s from the Russians, they can kind of hedge their bets, have a foot in both camps. And I think the Americans are making it very clear, no, you can't do that. If you get the S-400s, we are going to play hardball with you. We're not going to give you. We're not going to let you take the livery of the F-35s. We're going to put the screws to you generally. And this has become increasingly the direction of the American policy. We're making similar threats, for example, toward Germany on the question of completing the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. You should be buying liquefied natural gas from us instead of Russian gas, which is proximate to you. So this, this is the attitude we see. I, 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 I'm of two minds about this. On the one hand, people say, well, Turkey is not a very good ally. We should throw them out of NATO. Well, as far as I'm concerned, it shouldn't be in NATO. and We should be out of NATO. So I'm not really, really sure whether the question is to throw the Turks out of NATO and where then does that leave us then in the region? I know some people have been flirting with the notion that if Turkey is alienated from Washington. This opens the door for Greece to somehow be a great player with Washington in the region, maybe in concert with Cyprus and with Israel. I tend to think that's a bit of a pipe dream. I think there's just, as I say, a lot of moving parts here, 
and it's hard to know where it's going. A lot of moving parts, as he said, and uh, a lot of uh, topics to further elaborate upon. There's a line of thought, a, a frame of thinking that uh, believes that even if Turkey goes ahead and purchases the S-400s from Russia, that the U.S. will eventually fold and will not, for instance, boot Turkey out of NATO because Turkey is just considered to be too valuable geostrategically to let go of. Do you think this is a possibility and that the Turkish government, of course, knows this? I, I don't know if we would if we we would fold on the F-35s and do think the prospect of booting them out of NATO is actually rather small. To start with, there's no real mechanism for doing that. Uh, you know, you, what you would need to do is have each country who's a member of NATO modify its treaty, basically to abrogate its treaty relationship with Turkey under the North Atlantic Treaty. And I think that would be a rather difficult thing to accomplish. And you're right that the thinking, and, and, this, and this goes back a long time, uh, especially when you look at attempts by the Greeks and the Greek community to have influence here in Washington. And, and I think there are a lot of people who have a notion of the Greek lobby here as a much more substantial and influential that it really is, that they tend to see themselves as players on the same stage or a trade-off between Greece and Turkey in terms of American priorities in the region. And there really is no comparison. When you look at how much weight Turkey has with, for example, the, the military industries here in the United States, that the, the Greece really is not a player in the same arena when it comes with that kind of influence. So I think you're right. At the end of the day, most people would say Turkey is just too important for us to cede to the Russian camp. Now, something interesting that we are seeing, and you alluded to this a few moments ago, is this growing connection between Greece and Cyprus and Israel. And there have been high-level meetings between the leaders of these countries in recent months. And what's particularly ironic, if you will, is that we're seeing these moves, at least on the part of Greece, from a self-proclaimed radical leftist government. And yet here we are seeing the current government of Greece warming in terms of its relations with Israel. And there are many who believe that this would if not serve as a counterweight to Turkish influence in a region, will at least raise the profile of Greece and Cyprus strategically in the region. Now, recently there have also been a, a couple of other developments that might be related to this in some way. There is talk of the U.S. selling Greece, some F-35s, and there has also been talk in the Senate, I believe, of lifting the U.S. arms embargo towards Cyprus, which it's interesting that this even exists in the first place. So how do you evaluate all of these developments? And do Greece and Cyprus have any chance of being upgraded in terms of their strategic role in the region? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. When uh, when Erdogan came to power in Turkey, he had, uh, what was it, uh, I forget what the exact phrase was, but indicated that Turkey should have no enemies abroad. Basically, it should have friends in all directions. And of course, he's managed to end up with uh, with enemies in all directions. And I think, in principle, that's a good approach for, for Greece as well, to say, look, wherever there are opportunities for partnership, wherever there are opportunities for friendship, uh, obviously with Cyprus, but if, if there's a door open with the Israelis as well, and there are practical, specific matters on which they can cooperate, whether it's security cooperation or energy cooperation. There's talk, as you know, of building uh, pipelines 
to take for, uh, uh, energy from the so-called Leviathan field in the eastern Mediterranean via Greece or in Cyprus, or maybe some talked about maybe taking to Egypt first because there's a, there's a, 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 a there's a possibility of Egyptian cooperation there. Look, I, I can see that those opportunities, and I think it would be in Athens' interest to to make the most of those. And if that helps to increase Greece's standing with the United States, at least over the short term, why not do that? Uh, uh, and when we talk about influence in Washington, obviously Israeli influence is the 800-pound gorilla, proverbially. Uh, proverbially. And uh, let's remember that for years and years, prior to Erdogan, when uh, Turkey had a, a Kemalist uh, political orientation, the Israelis and the Turks were very, very close, and that certainly was in the Turks' benefit. They were closely allied in Washington with the, the top lobby with Congress and with the administration, and to some extent, if the Greeks can make uh, benefit of that, I, I think that would be a useful thing for them to do for the short term. Where that leads us in the long-term strategic picture, I don't know, because it would also then put Greece in a very uh, in a in a position of, if not enmity with Russia, which already is, I guess, nominally is through its uh, membership in NATO, which, despite protestations to the contrary, is an anti-Russian alliance. We, we, we'd have to look at the long-term consequences of that, but for the short term, I think, I think Greece should make use of whatever cooperation it can. And Turkey, notwithstanding, Greece has also had for a very long time a good relations with many countries in the Middle Eastern world that could also be impacted potentially by, by uh, such a development. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, the, and the number one would be Syria. Now that it's clear that despite the dogged uh, efforts by Western powers to keep uh, al-Qaeda alive in Idlib, uh, that uh, despite that, that, that Assad has won the war, uh, Syria, of course, was a country that Greece uh, traditionally had very good relations with, largely because they both had very bad uh, attitudes toward toward uh, Turkey. Uh, that obviously will flip if uh, if uh, Greece is is uh, more of an Israeli orientation in the region. We are on the air here on the Galagos Radio and the Galagos Interview Series with Jim Jatras, who is a former U.S. diplomat, former foreign policy advisor to U.S. Senate Republican leadership. Jim, to what extent does the U.S. have influence over the inner workings? in Turkey, over what is going on in Turkey. We've seen rhetoric from Trump and his administration about causing harm to Turkey's economy. And lo and behold, we've seen the Turkish economy enter what could be described as a nosedive. We saw the candidates that Erdogan supported in a recent municipal elections in Turkey, in the big cities, in the three biggest cities of Turkey, not win the elections, even though (laughs) it seems that the, the Erdogan regime is trying its best to overturn that. But nevertheless, that result speaks volumes. And to what extent might the United States be involved in these economic and political developments? I'm not really in a position to give you the details of what that involvement would be, but I would be astounded if it doesn't exist. For all the uh, finding over the last few years about Russian or whoever else's influence uh, meddling in our elections, as is well known, uh, as a matter of course, we meddle in everybody's elections. That we have 
numerous NGOs, or they're not really NGOs, they're quangos, quasi-non-governmental organizations that are funded one way or the other by the National Endowment for Democracy, and that these organizations typically work very closely with the Soros-funded organizations, and they exert a lot of influence in a lot of countries. Now, are there other things we could be doing, for example, in, in the cyber world or in the financial world to also have an impact on countries like Turkey? I'm sure there are, but I don't know what the details of what those might be. Now, I don't know how feasible this is, but in the event that Turkey decides for whatever reason to not go ahead with the purchase of the S-400s from Russia, I don't know if this is a likely outcome or not, but how would that impact relations between Turkey and Russia? I, I don't know that it would be that huge of a factor. I mean, obviously, like we, the Russians like to sell whatever of their stuff they can. I think it was to them a marker of how much their relationship with Turkey had grown. If the Turks back off, well, then I, I think the Russians would take that in stride. That's something that they hoped would happen. It didn't happen. Okay, we'll see where we go from there. I don't know that it would be that that huge of a of a of a difference. I, I think I think part of it is is that you know I think we have to look at this in, in a larger context of uh, Eurasian integration, the the One Belt One Road initiative. That there is I think an increasing move away from Europe, away from Atlanticism, toward a Eurasianist economic uh, and even to some extent uh, security model in in, uh, in 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 the Eastern Hemisphere, and that Turkey really doesn't have a whole lot to gain from Atlanticism, uh, whether you have an Islamist government or a Kemalist government in power. And uh, and I think if Turkey is cognizant of her national interests, she will want to have a good relationship with Russia, and, and I would say also with Iran. And whether the Americans like that or not, uh, that shouldn't be their, if I were in their shoes, their primary consideration. Now, having mentioned Russia, let's turn the page now and look at relations between Russia and the United States. And of course, also something that's been in the news seemingly constantly ever since Trump was elected, Russiagate. So we have the Mueller report, the possible end of Russiagate. What are your thoughts on this whole Russiagate saga and about what might follow now that it seems to be over. There is no prospect, in my opinion, of any improvement in relations between the United States and Russia. The end of Russia gate, in the sense that Mueller has wrapped up his report and apparently found no, quote, collusion, I think will have no impact at all on American policy. Those who think Trump might now be liberated to improve relations with Russia I think it's a pipe dream that's just not going to happen, that not only do the people around him, like National Security Advisor Bolton and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, not want to see anything like that, that we will we will continue with this uh, full court press uh, against Russia on not only the deployment of new intermediate range weapons in Europe, the stationing of nuclear-capable cruise missiles on B-52s, maneuvers in the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea, uh, more sanctions, more financial penalties. I, I think one of the things that people do not focus on is is the direct U.S. role in meddling in Orthodox Church affairs, especially in Ukraine, in a way that is designed to be a, let's say, a political moral weapon against Russia. Of course, the United States is not recognized by me as part of Russia and insists that this, that sanctions on Russia will stay on as long as the Russians hold Crimea, which means forever. Unfortunately, I don't see anything positive in the future. 
Thanks also for bringing up another issue that is of importance and particularly of importance to the Greek and Greek Orthodox audience that is listening. You mentioned meddling with church affairs, Orthodox church affairs and the Ukraine. We've seen the recent developments that have come out of the Patriarchio in Constantinople in Istanbul. What is going on as far as these developments within the Greek Orthodox Church and with Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church, and the Ukraine? Well, first off, a lot of people uh, may, may be unclear as to what exactly is happening because the reportage on this in the major media has been so atrocious. You, you r- routinely see headlines that say, Ukrainian church breaks away from Russia. Ukrainian church is now independent of Russia. Of course, nothing of the sort has happened. That the canonical Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which is an aut- autonomous part of the Russian Orthodox Church and is self-governing in almost every respect, has not changed its status at all. That's the canonical church recognized by every one of the autocephalous Orthodox churches, except for Constantinople, which itself recognized only that canonical church until uh, October of this last year. This new entity recognized by Constantinople is a group of schismatics that are not recognized by anybody else, that even though Patriarch Bartholomew has called upon all the other autocephalous churches to recognize this new entity, none of them has done so, not even the Church of Greece, not, and of course the Church of Albania, which is essentially a Greek church, uh, has very strongly criticized this action by the ecumenical patriarch. The rhetoric and the canonical uh, arguments used by Constantinople to justify this are not only, to say, to say they are thin is a gross understatement, but what is especially disturbing is this really sweeping claim of what amounts to papal authority by Constantinople over the entire Orthodox Church, something which has no basis in the history or traditions of our church. But the maybe even more disturbing thing about it is the extent to which uh, the State Department and uh, groups like the Atlantic Council here in Washington, which is really a wholly owned subsidiary of the U.S. government and of the military industries, has been really deeply involved in supporting Constantinople on this and President Poroshenko of Ukraine in the creation of this so-called new Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which has no canonical status at all. This is purely political machinations on the part of Washington. It's, I would say, a sweeping claim of non-traditional ecclesiastical power on the part of Constantinople, and unfortunately runs the real risk of a worldwide schism within Orthodoxy and of violence in Ukraine, which I think is in nobody's interest. This is the Alagos Radio and the Alagos interview series. We're speaking with Jim Jatras, former U.S. diplomat and former foreign policy advisor to U.S. Senate Republican leadership. Let's talk a little bit about NATO more broadly, because what seems to be coming out of Washington is a demand toward the other members of NATO to increase their military spending, to increase their military budgets. Let's look at this another way. What is the end game here as far as Washington's plans for NATO in the future, and to what extent do you believe that NATO members in Europe are going to go along with these demands for increased spending and increased contributions? Uh, I think the, the key country here is Germany. Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty clear the Germans are not going to go along with this. They are under a lot of pressure, as I mentioned earlier, with respect to South Stream 2. 
You know, the, the U.S. posture on this is, is, is very confusing. Uh, let's remember that during the campaign, Trump said very bad things about NATO, that they're a bunch of freeloaders, they don't do us any good, we don't need NATO. It's, it's, it's a useless organization, it's, a, it's an outdated organization, all of which is true. And then as soon as he got into office, the first thing he did was sign the accession to NATO of Montenegro. I should tell you, by the way, I was instrumental in holding off that Senate ratification for, for two months, uh, hoping that Trump would actually change the position on that. They, uh, they, weren't, they weren't sure in the Senate whether he would uh, actually make good on his word about NATO. They tried to ram Montenegro's accession to NATO through the Senate on the very day he was inaugurated because they weren't sure he would go along with it. As it turned out, he did, but it took a couple of months for them to do that. Somehow his his criticism of NATO turned into a demand for more money. Let's remember that so-called burden sharing has been a, uh, a, a slogan in Washington for a very long time. We'd need more burden sharing. We need the Europeans to pay more for their own defense. What, of course, nobody ever talks about is defense. What defense? Uh, we, we can hype all the Russian threat we want. If these countries really thought they were threatened by Russia, they wouldn't need us to pester them to spend more. They would spend more on their own. But the fact is, they don't feel any such threat. The Baltic states, Poland, uh, maybe Romania will talk that way. But even they, I don't think, seriously believe they face a military threat from Russia. And certainly the Germans don't. The only real security threat a country like Germany faces is from a migration policy that, that Angela Merkel has welcomed. And more defense spending is going, to, is going to do much to shield them from that. So the idea that they need to be ponying out more money... Uh, I think it's kind of a, a poor substitute for what Trump's original criticism of the alliance was. But now that that has become the watchword and he's tweeting away his great success again about getting countries to spend more, somehow NATO has become an essential and very good organization uh, rather than one that he rightly called obsolete back during the 2016 campaign. As I mentioned, Jens Stoltenberg spoke to a joint meeting of Congress here the other day in Washington. That's the first time any NATO Secretary General has ever done that. Uh, so somehow his criticism of NATO has turned into a, a concentration on NATO as somehow the greatest thing that ever existed in world history. And we're also hearing uh, discussions recently about possibly bringing NATO over into the Latin American sphere and making countries like Colombia and Brazil members of NATO as well. Yeah, I guess we have to change it from the North Atlantic Treaty Organization to the Global Atlantic Treaty Organization, GATO. It's a, it's a <laughs> it, 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 is, it is really bizarre. It seems like we're, we're, we're in a time warp back to uh, the worst days of the Cold War when we had not only NATO, we had CETO and CENTO and all these little uh, alliances, except this is what? Going to be one big global alliance? To what end? To defend us from what exactly? Evidently, we're not supposed to ask these questions. In your view, are developments that we're seeing halfway across the world in places like Afghanistan, in India and Pakistan, related in some way to developments that we're seeing in Balkans, the developments that we were talking about earlier, and in what has been going on more recently in Venezuela and Colombia. And I mention this because there seems to be a, a common thread here. Opium production in Afghanistan, certainly Venezuela borders Colombia and 
plenty of uh, drug production and drug trade coming out of there. And then, of course, countries like Albania are also known for drug trafficking as well. Is it far-fetched to say that there's some kind of a connection between all of this and then also with India and Pakistan and their recent conflict being that they, those countries, are in the neighborhood of, of Afghanistan? I, I think there are connections, but I, I would not be able to tell you precisely what those are. Uh, uh, for example, some people, have, you, you noted the, the drug uh, connection through Kosovo is the big distribution point of uh, Afghan opium into, into uh, Europe. Uh, let's remember that uh, under the Taliban, I'm no fan of the Taliban, uh, that, that opium production had uh, been cut way down, but it went right back up again after the United States liberated Afghanistan, and now given the chaos that's ensued, that uh, Afghanistan is producing more opium than ever. Is there a connection there? And then its distribution through Kosovo into Europe? It would be naive to think that there isn't one, but I don't know precisely what that is. I don't know if Venezuela is primarily about drugs or if it's primarily about uh, oil, that uh, Venezuela has a huge part of, of the world's reserves. Trump has said in so many words, we need to take the oil and give it to American companies, just like he said, our big mistake in uh, Iraq was not taking the Iraqi oil. Again, is that exactly, is that actually what he has in mind? Is that what's behind this? Is it as simple as uh, people like uh, Mr. Bolton, Mr. Pompeo thinking, oh, here's one of the pieces on the board for the other side we can take off. This will be an easy regime change that maybe turned out to be not quite so easy. Uh, people uh, cite the Monroe Doctrine that, well, this is the Western Hemisphere. We can't allow countries like Russia and China to have a foothold in our hemisphere, which is a nice thought, but I guess we don't return the favor when it comes to their hemisphere, that uh, we, we, if uh, the Russians want to answer us on Venezuela, they can say, great, we agree. Now you get out of Eurasia, starting with Ukraine and Syria. Oh, you don't agree with that? Well, then just shut up. Uh, that we, we seem to want to have this double standard where we can claim that we have a unique uh, security right in our own hemisphere, but by the way, our our sphere of influence encompasses in the entire globe, as well as you know, as, as South China Sea and every place else. So it's um, I, I, it, I I don't know that there is a particularly a, a drug connection to all of these things. Uh, I I think it probably is a factor in there somewhere. Certainly, energy is a factor. I think the other big issue is, as I mentioned earlier, Eurasian integration, the One Belt Initiative that I think this is something that Washington is dead set to try to disrupt any way we can. I, I'm convinced that a lot of what we're hearing about the, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang is being ginned up by the uh, by the CIA as, as a, to give the Chinese a hot foot within their own territory. I think a lot of the noise about the Rohingya in Myanmar is also coming from the same source. Now, you mentioned earlier the Trump campaign rhetoric against NATO in 2016 and how all of that has changed in the past couple of years. What about the Trump administration's stance toward the United Nations? There were similar negative rhetoric toward the UN during the Trump campaign. How would you evaluate the stance of the Trump administration toward the UN at this time? Ambivalent. Uh, I, I think that and this is not just the Trump administration. I think that there's a lot of criticism uh, of the United Nations here in Washington from both parties, they, I think they just look at it in an almost utilitarian way. What good does it do us for whatever purpose we have may have in mind? Let's remember, for example, that when uh, George uh, uh, 
H.W. Bush, the first Bush, uh, launched his war against Saddam Hussein in, uh, in 1990, that he, um, he said, I went to the U.N. He couldn't get it through Congress, but he said, that's all right, I went to the U.N. instead, as though that somehow legitimated what he wanted to do under American law. As it happened, he got congressional support as well, but he said he didn't need it because he had U.N. support. Well, I think sometimes we'll find American policymakers saying, oh, well, if the U.N. can be useful to us, great. If it's not, well, then who needs it? Uh, and uh, and I think especially with Republican administrations and maybe even sort of with this, more so with this administration, to the extent to which as the, especially the Security Council is, to, is supposed to be kind of a, a concert of powers that works by consensus, well, we don't believe in consensus. We believe in our way or the highway. And if other countries agree and do what they're told, great, we love you. If you don't and you insist on your sovereign rights, well, then you're an obstacle who needs to be overcome. I think that's basically the attitude toward the U.N. You're listening to the Alagos Radio, where we have on the air with us from Washington, former U.S. diplomat and former foreign policy advisor to U.S. Senate Republican leadership, Jim Jatras. And with just a few minutes left in our interview, let's shift gears again and look at what is going on in Europe and what we might, what developments we might expect to see in the coming weeks and months. We see what is going on with Brexit. Uh, we're recording this interview on April 8th. It's entirely possible by the time this interview is broadcast, there will be other developments as far as Brexit goes. But assuming that one way or another, the UK leaves the European Union and some form of Brexit takes place, what would this mean for UK-US relations, and what would it mean for the EU and future of the European Union? Well, in 1848, Marx and Engels wrote there was a specter haunting Europe, the specter of communism. Well, now there's also a specter haunting Europe, the specter of populism, that the the Eurocrats, the Merkels, the Macrons, the Mays, all the rest of them are terrified that uh, of the yellow vests, of the of the regular lumpen European saying We're, we don't want any of this stuff. All this globaloney is is not doing us any good. We're, it's not good for our economies. It's not good for our children. We don't want it. Uh, I think we saw some of that uh, actually in in Greece with when uh, Syriza was first elected to power as a left populist opposition to uh, what. The, the so-called austerity and the other things that the that that Brussels and the German bankers had had done to Greece, and of course, Cyprus ended up selling out, and you know that they stewed ever since. But we see this in other countries too, where uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, Le Pen in France or AFD in in Germany or the Five Star um, Lega Alliance in Italy, I think the European uh, post nation leadership is terrified that the, the peasants are getting restless. And one manifestation of that certainly was the Brexit vote, which in a way was kind of a harbinger of what then happened in the U.S. election a few months later. I think they feel the need to punish the British and particularly punish the English for having the temerity of voting the way they did. That can take two forms. I, I, I've been puzzled over the last uh, couple of years whether Theresa May is simply incompetent or whether she's treacherous. Was she doing this because she doesn't know what she's doing or was she deliberately trying to make sure there can be no viable deal between the EU and, and the UK for, uh, for Brexit so that one way or the other they would be forced to stay in the European Union. 
I think that's actually what she had in mind all along, that if you come back with what they call Brino, Brexit in name only, which means you're stuck with all the European edicts that have no voice in making them, the worst of both worlds, that somehow they would end up staying in the EU, which is what I think she really has in mind. I think that's also what Brussels would prefer with all this talk about an extension. The second best thing from Brussels' point of view would be uh, it's having scared everybody with this so-called hard Brexit is to make sure that the divorce is as painful as possible to essentially scare the British the way they scared the Greeks. That uh, you can you can leave, but boy, it's going to cost you, and boy, your whole economy is going to collapse. So I think that's what they're trying to do with the British. I don't know if the British are going to fall for it. I think we're coming at the cusp where it's either going to be a hard Brexit or no Brexit. Right, that's what it looks like uh, to from my perspective as well, and I guess... We'll know one way or another in the coming weeks. Another issue that you brought up earlier, and I did want to get this in before we wrapped up our interview, is the influence of George Soros in Europe and certainly his influence in the Balkans. You mentioned earlier the National Endowment for Democracy. You mentioned various other organizations that are active in the region. How extensive, first of all, is the George Soros role in the Balkans and in Europe more broadly? And second of all, as far as uh, I am aware, there is an investigation ongoing against him from this organization in the U.S. Judicial Watch. Do you think this has any teeth? Uh, Yeah, George Soros is living proof of the old saying that only the good die young. Um, he, uh, he, he seems to have uh, seems to have an immortal life, not only physically, but in terms of his, his baneful influence on events. Yes, I, I, there, there, obviously he slings a lot of money around the, the, uh, not only the Balkans, but many countries through various organizations that fund organi- other organizations that fund yet other organizations. Sometimes it's very hard to track exactly who is being funded by his various organizations, and very often you'll see... Uh, even on the ones that do list who their supporters are, and a lot of them don't, they'll list various foreign governments, the Americans, the Canadians, the Germans, and then also one of the permutations of the Open Society or Renaissance organizations. Uh, They, too, tend to work very, very closely together, and I almost feel that, in many respects, American money coming through through NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, acts as almost like a multiplier of Soros' own money. In other words, he will set the policy lead, decide, or these people, set which organizations, which agenda they're going to follow. This is particularly by the true, and I don't know how your audience feels about this, on, on the use of uh, LGBT ideology as like the cutting edge of Western policy in, in traditional countries in Eastern Europe, like Serbia and Ukraine and Russia and Georgia, that really don't want any of this stuff. And uh, that this has become a huge priority for Western governments, largely because it's a huge priority for, uh, for, for Soros. Uh, and as I say, NED, uh, and, and by the way, if I don't make it to heaven, I think part of the reason will be that back in my days in the State Department, I was one of the people that helped create NED in the first place, thinking it was actually about democracy and fighting communism. Little did I know what kind of monster it would turn into, into over time. As far as the investigation goes, I know Senator Mike Lee of uh, Utah is looking into this. 
Uh, there are several some several members of the House that are looking at this. As you say, Judicial Watch is on top of it. I don't know what's likely to be done about it because so much of the establishment, especially in the executive branch agencies, are so tied to this very agenda. It's the fox watching the hen house. They're the last ones who allow will allow there to be any real scrutiny about this. That it has a kind of a sacred cow status that they they can they can kick against the walls all they want. But I, 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 I somehow think they're not going to make much headway. And I think one example that illustrates the influence that Soros has in the Balkans is an NGO that is located in Greece by the name of uh, the Center for Democracy and Reconciliation in Southeastern Europe, the CDRSEE, which was founded by Matthew Nimitz, himself the UN mediator on the Macedonia name dispute. And if one looks at who funds this organization? The NED is there. The various open society foundations are there. Central European University, which was founded by George Soros, is there. And this is an organization that was uh, established by an individual that was, for 25 years, the main person in charge of mediating the Macedonia dispute. There you go. I, I, I think it's a perfect microcosm of what we're talking about, and then you ask the question, well, especially since Soros is very, very hostile to Trump, and Trump, last I heard, was supposed to be president of the United States, you'd think maybe there would be some uh, edict from on high to say, okay, we don't need this guy, let's 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 cut these ties and, and have our own agenda that's not tied to his. You don't see anything of the sort, and I think this is another evidence of the so-called permanent government, deep state, the oligarchy, the, uh, the Borg, whatever you want to call it, that day in, day out, does what it does, that has more in common with, uh, you know, the common turn uh, than it does with what any normal impression most people have about how the U.S. government is supposed to work. And one final question before we wrap up. Let's take an early look at the 2020 presidential elections and the uh, campaign season that is already heating up. Do you see Trump getting reelected? And what do you see coming out of the uh, the Democratic Party at this time? Well, I, I think there's a very strong chance he will be reelected if he is still in office in 2020. I don't think the Democrats by any means have given up on that because I think they are indeed afraid that given the divisions within their own party between what we might call the Wall Street uh, Democrats and the and the Democratic Socialists and and, and they're just their their silly descent into identity politics where you know you know Joe Biden is a hugger and what about me too and isn't he too white and you know all this other nonsense they they very likely are going to tear themselves apart and come into the election in a very weak position, especially with regard to some of those Rust Belt states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin that they need to win back if they want to take the White House. And Trump, you know, even though I think he has uh, failed on many of his signature campaign promises, a huge part of his base is still extremely solid because when he says it at his campaign rallies or when he tweets it, they think he's actually done it. And whereas they take words as having been real performance, since they really don't know what goes on here in Washington. So I, I think he's actually in a rather strong position, which is why they really want to get their mitts on his tax returns, find anything they can to get him impeached, whether it's uh, some something in his personal life, something to do with women, something to do with uh, his business dealings. They can, they can have an impeachable offense against him. The conventional wisdom is that that can't succeed because they would need to get about 15 Republicans to vote to remove him, 
and people say, well, that's not going to happen. I don't rule that out. Unlike Democrats who, for example, rallied around Bill Clinton in the Senate when he got impeached, I think more in terms of the uh, Richard Nixon model, where it was Republican senators who gave him the he of ho, said, look, you either resign or you're going to be removed from office because push comes to shove and the partisan chips are down, Republicans are cowards. And if they can find something that the New York Times and the Washington Post wave around like a bloody shirt, they'll all run away in panic, unlike the Democrats that circle the wagons around their guy. Okay, well, Jim, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today and providing your take on all of these hot-button issues. We'd love to have you back here again on the Alagos Radio in the future. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate the opportunity, and and, uh, I'm happy to come back anytime you ask.